Hello and welcome to Living Hope. This is Pastor Staten, and I want to welcome everybody that is joining us today. A shout out to our E family, all of you that are joining us through the internet. I want to remind you every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you can join us live at tv.livinghopemd.com. I pray that today's message blesses you and that you enjoy the word as it is shared today. I'm so lost to be found, and I know it's in my mind. Is in this place today. How many of you are thankful for God's presence? Hallelujah. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I want to give honor, first of all, to this amazing local assembly. You guys, both old and new, have been part of my life since I was 18 years old when the Lord filled me with the Holy Ghost. There's been mountains and there's been valleys, but I just thank God that uh, I never look back. And God has kept me and God has sustained me and sustained my family. And I'm just thankful for God's people and I'm thankful for God's presence. I want to honor our pastor today and our first lady. Thank you for the opportunity. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for the opportunity that he's entrusted me with today to honor our bishop. I love him so much. I still remember the day that my family drove up to Midway Drive just to check the church out. And he happened to be out there. And he pulled up to the driver's side door and greeted our family and the rest is history. And most of all, I'm just thankful for my wife. My heart swells to this day when I see Nikki. I try, to crit- I try not to criticize her choices because I was one of them. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for that. Amen. If you would turn to your Bibles, it's going to be a little bit lengthy of a reading, but hopefully you'll be able to endure with me. <clears throat> We're going to read from John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. And we're going to stay in the book of John. The second verse we're going to read is out of John 15 and then 1 John. So thank you again in advance for bearing with me. You would allow me to set the tone this morning. A man by the name of Nicodemus has requested an audience with Jesus. Now understand that Nicodemus wasn't just some random, run-of-the-mill, ordinary man. In fact, Nicodemus was a very prestigious, high individual. He was a member of the high Jewish council of his day. And he had a genuine desire, a curiosity, if you will, to know who this man Jesus was. So in an effort to avoid perhaps scrutiny, criticism, or even further consequences, he requested to meet with him in the secrecy of night. And that's where we come into John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded to him and said, Truly, truly I say to you, unless someone is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus then said to him, How can a person be born when he is old? He can't enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For that which has been born, the flesh is flesh. And that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. He said, don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus responded and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, 
You are the teacher of Israel. And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? For no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God bless you. You may be seated. We're going to continue on with John 15. Just as the Father has loved me, John said, I also have loved you. Therefore, remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remained in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. And finally, 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have chosen man to speak your words. What a privilege. I pray today that you would open not just every eye, every ear, but every heart, every spirit to receive your word. There are those that have come today broken, emaciated in their spirits by sin and hurt and bitterness whatever else the case may be, Heavenly Father. But I pray today that your anointing would break every yoke. And I pray that your love may abound today, God, that we would know and leave here today knowing that we are your sons and daughters. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you consider the concept of love, I'm sure that there are many words that come to mind when we think of love. Words like trust, honesty, faithfulness, selflessness. But if I could encapsulate all those words into one description, it would be commitment. Love is a commitment. Love and commitment go hand in hand. It's, it's, it's a lifelong commitment to someone that is so strong that you would even give your life for that person. I remember my first date with my now wife, Nikki. It was a formal event, and honestly, at the time, I was merely going as a plus one. Up until that night, I had only seen Nikki as just that, just Nikki, nothing more and, and nothing less. I really didn't have any thoughts or expectations going into that evening. To be honest, if we've talked about it and we can laugh about it now, I, I went into that evening just wanting to get it over with. <laughs> However, when I picked her up, nothing could have prepared me for what I saw and how it made me feel. I stood there patiently waiting in the foyer of her house when this breathtaking beauty walked down the steps in a beautiful, elegant, pastel green gown. She was the epitome of modesty, grace, elegance, and beauty. I had no idea the feelings that I would start to develop that day. In fact, in hindsight, uh, my mother-in-law said, when I saw the look on Jose's face, I knew that 
something was going to change from this day forward. And that image is still etched in my mind. I can remember bits and pieces of that evening, but it's one thing for sure. I remember her. I remember exactly what she looked like. I was talking to Bishop recently at Brad and Jarlene's wedding. And we reminisced about this home missions trip we took to Mississippi and how helping the Mallorys that week wasn't the only good thing that came out of that trip. For shortly afterwards, Nikki and I began to date. And at the wedding, Bishop looked at me and pointed at Nikki and said, Son, she's the best thing that ever happened to you. Well, truer words couldn't have been spoken. She really is. But now, after 17 years of marriage and four amazing children, after valleys and mountaintops, after seeing one another's flaws and failures and strengths and weaknesses, I can certainly understand more and more every day what it means to love somebody so much that you would give your life for that person. And I certainly hope that every husband and every wife and every parent that hears my voice today feels the same way, that you would give your life for your children, that you would give your life for your spouse. And today, I want to talk to you about love. Believe it or not, the subject of love is scattered throughout the Bible. You may see it in parables. You may see it in types. You may see it in metaphors. But if you look from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the message is the same, and that is God is love. I read it to you a few moments ago. In Jesus Christ's own words, God is love. For greater love has no man than this, that one would lay down their life for their friends. The opening passages that I read just a few moments ago came from the beloved disciple, the apostle John. And while Matthew and Mark and Luke and John gave us all incredible insight into the life of Jesus, John the beloved, John, who was closer to Jesus than probably anybody else, gave us through his extraordinary writing insight into the heartbeat of our Savior. In his writings, you can feel the longing and the emotions of Jesus Christ and his inner feelings towards mankind. It is here that I personally believe that we are deeply and intimately introduced to what is known in the Greek as agape love. Let me say agape love is not some vain love. Agape love is not some fickle or superficial love. It's not even a surface level love. It's not even a romantic or, or heartwarming type of love. But agape love ventures deep into the realm of self-sacrifice. Agape love ventures so deep and so strong that it gives of itself entirely without reservation and without hesitation. So John, now standing face to face with Jesus Christ, Jesus, the man whom he grew up with, the man who he called brother, and the man whom he now calls Messiah, he is now standing face to face in the revelation that I'm standing in front of my king. And he writes these holy inspired words, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he recognized this privilege when he said, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God, but God shows his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning, I want to remind you, I want to encourage you that Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus Christ loves you more than you can ever comprehend. Jesus Christ loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you without exception. He loves you without reservation. He loves you without thinking twice about it. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to figure it out. He loves you, and he loves you unconditionally. 
That old Sunday school song still remains true today. Yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that so the world through him might be saved. So I want you to be encouraged this morning. I want you to have confidence this morning. I want you to rejoice in this truth this morning that Jesus Christ loves you unconditionally. Yes, he does. And there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can say. There's nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you're going to do that's going to distance you from the love of God. Paul said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge, he said, against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is making intercessions for us. For who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For as it is written, the Bible says, for his sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. But nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure I am persuaded I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord what are you saying brother Alberti I'm not saying that God is okay with everything that you've done. I'm not saying that his stamp of approval is on every decision that you've made or that he favors every path that you've taken. If I can say anything is that God hates sin. He hates what sin does. He hates the consequences of sin. And sometimes in his love there has to be consequences. And sometimes in his love there has to be judgment. But I can say with utmost confidence that he loves you more than you will ever know. Amen. This powerful declaration by Paul testifies the power of Christ. It testifies of the power of his love and his ability to keep us. That's why I am telling you this morning that there is nothing that you've done. I don't care what has happened. I don't care what you've done, sir, ma'am, young person. I don't care what you've involved yourself in. I don't care what you've done. Married couples, families, I don't care what has happened. I don't care how bad the sin has been. I don't care how bad things have gotten. I want to tell you today, that in spite of me and in spite of you and in spite of our failures and in spite of our shortcomings and bad decisions and mistakes, Jesus Christ loves me just as I am. I know, I know, I know that's hard to understand. I know that that idea, that reality is hard to wrap our head around, but yes, God loves the vilest of sinners. God loves the most decrepit of sinners. Oh, yes, he does. He loves the drug addict just as much as he loves the drug dealer. He loves the homosexual just as much as he loves you and me. He loves the prisoners on death row just as much as he loves you and me. And I can confidently say that it's never his will that we remain in sin. It's never his will that we remain in darkness. But he understands, he understands this. God will never stop loving you. God will never stop reaching for you. God will never stop pursuing you. He is relentless in his pursuit for mankind. Brother Alberti, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. Because you, probably much like me, tend to view God through our own humanity. We tend to view God through whom I would love or not love. But that's not what Paul said. 
Paul said that I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the Holy Ghost. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. And then in verse 19, he says to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There it is. The reason that many of us can't wrap our heads around why God would love the worst of sinners just as much as he loves anybody else in this room is because his love surpasses knowledge. His love is beyond our human comprehension. His love is beyond our human reasoning. His love goes so deep. My God, his patience with us stretches so far that he loves us not just where we are, but he loves us enough not to leave us there. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I want to know how many are thankful this morning. How many are thankful this morning? How many are thankful that God met you where you were at? And he loved you right where you were at. But he loved you enough to take you out of that life. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised the places that Jesus has gone to reach the lost. Outside of your own will, there is no boundary he won't cross. Pastor preached about it a few months ago. He crossed an entire sea in one night just to reach one man ravaged by a legion of demons. Jesus Christ, being a Jew, defied cultural norms and made his way intentionally, on purpose, to Samaria to minister just to one woman with a not-so-reputable past. Oh, Brother Alberti, those are just accounts in the Bible. Those are just things that happened a long time ago. I need something that I can relate to. I need something that can make sense to me. Well, Jesus Christ will go to any lengths to find you. He'll go wherever he needs to go just to remind you that he loves you and you are his. Because he will do anything for love. And I don't think we understand that this morning. There is no place that he won't go to find you. There is no place that he won't dwell to let you know that he is there. He'll make his way. Brother, Sister Sylvia, he'll make his way into a couple's home on the brink of divorce. And before any Bibles were opened, before any Bible studies were taught, before any relationships were established here, he was there every single time. His love was there in every argument. He was there during every fight. He was there during every idle word that was said. He was there when doors were slammed and God was there wiping tears away and breathing hope even when you didn't feel it. And now look. The love dwelled in a place that seemed undwellable. And now look at what God has done in this family. Amen. Oh, but God wouldn't go there. Oh, yes, he would. Oh, yes, he would. That's why God made his way on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico and began calling James Philip by name. And then he followed James right there into Louisiana and eventually to Lexington Park. And now look at this walking miracle that we see here today. The love of God has no bounds. The love of God will stretch far and deep. Hallelujah, the love of God was there, Junior, in that trailer, Junior, when you were just 11 years old. God was not taken back by your lifestyle. He wasn't taken back or deterred by the conditions that you were living in, but he met you right where you were at. And as a young boy, he began to call you and love you right where you were at. Amen. 
Brandon, he was there with you on every deployment. I'm, I thank God for Brandon and the friendship that's being developed there. But Brandon, he was there with you on every deployment. He was there reaching for you and loving you on every deployment. He, he, he cared for you and he loved you when you were dealing with things that you saw in war and things you saw in battle that probably nobody else could even dare to see. He was there with you and he loved you when you were bound by alcohol. He loved you every time that you worked hard and played hard and submitted to the culture of that day. But every time that you took that bottle to drown away the thoughts and the memories of the things that you saw, he was there all along loving you. There is no place that God won't go to reach you. Bishop, I know you've testified about it, and it's your story, and I can't do it justice. But I wasn't alive back then, so I don't know the effects that Vietnam had on our soldiers. I don't know the effects that Vietnam had on our GIs. I don't know the mental state or emotional state that you were in in that moment. And I don't know all the things that happened that led you to being in that bar that day. But it was a bar just like any other bar. And a sailor by the name of Jerry Staten was drinking away his pain yet once again. But this day wasn't just another ordinary day and just another ordinary bar. That was the day that Jesus walked into a bar and called you out by name. And the love of God reached down into that young man in Vietnam. The love of God reached down and now look, years later, the domino effect that took place from that. Churches established from Stockton to Arizona to here. And many of you are here today because the love of God reached to a man at a bar years ago. There isn't anything that he won't do for love. There isn't anywhere that he won't reach for you. For those of you who don't know, my mother was a fan of Southern Gospel. She really was. She loved Southern Gospel. Before Jesus, though, my mother was big into dancing. She loved to dance. She would go to discotheques and she would dance the merengue and salsa. She could dance circles around any of you, probably. She could mash potato and do the twist. <laughs> but man, when the Lord grabbed a hold of her heart, she never looked back. She moved forward, and she never looked back. And one of her favorite singers, I didn't know this until later on, one of her favorite singers was Dottie Rambo. And she wrote a song, Dottie Rambo, called If That Isn't Love, where he says he left the splendors of heaven, knowing his destiny was a lonely hill of Golgotha, there to lay down his life for me. Even in death he remembered the thief hanging by his side. He spoke with love and compassion. Then he took him to paradise. If that isn't love. Self-sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, than one would lay down his life for his friends. I think it's fitting that you brought it up because I already had it in my notes. But it was 21 years ago today that Americans watched in horror as the terrorist attacks on September 11th left nearly 3,000 people dead between New York City, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. Many Americans were old enough to recall the day they remember where they were and what they were doing when that happened. Yet an ever-growing number of Americans have no personal memory of what happened because they were either too young or weren't even born yet. A barrage of emotions filled and took its toll on the people of our nation and on that day for the days and weeks and months to come. Many of us dealt with shock, sadness, fear, anger, and grief. However, today I am humbled by the stories of self-sacrifice that took place both on that day and the months to follow as our brave men and women fought for and gave their lives for you and for me. And more often than 
you'll ever see on the news, they gave their lives for their fellow brothers and sisters in arms. Men such as Wells Remy Crowder, also known as Man in Red Bandana. If you remember years ago in Carver, Pastor talked about it. He worked on the 104th floor of the South Tower, and he saved many people that day. By career, he was an equities trader. But that day, Wells turned into a firefighter. His final hours remained a mystery until an article in the New York Times mentioned eyewitness reports of a mysterious man in a red bandana on the 78th floor of the World Trade Center when the second plane crashed into the South Tower. It was there that Wells was likely to have been at that time since he was ultimately able to get down to the main lobby floor before the tower collapsed. He was home free. He was at the lobby. He could have just kept on going. But eyewitnesses reported that he turned around, and after the plane had hit into the sky lobby, a man suddenly appeared out of nowhere, as folks said. He was stripped down to just a T-shirt and wearing a red bandana to cover his nose and his mouth. This man organized a rescue effort on the floors high above where the official rescue workers weren't able to reach. He called for fire extinguishers. He called for, for help. He found and directed dazed and confused victims to the only stairwell that was open for escape. He carried a woman down to the 61st floor only to return up to the 78th floor and continue to rescue people. They said that he spoke calmly, compassionately, with authority, and he knew what he was doing. He saved many lives that day before giving up his own. Probably never heard of him. Perhaps you've never heard of firefighter Scott Davidson, who when the second plane struck the South Tower at 9.03 a.m., Davidson and his five peers raced across the Brooklyn Bridge. Scott Davidson's father, Stephen Davidson, recalled, and he's quoted saying, they parked their rig at West and Vesey Streets and then vanished into the thick, cloudy smoke and soup. Little did he know that that was the last time he was going to see his son. Ordered to help evacuate the Marriott World Trade Center, the hotel was sconced between both towers. Davidson and his men saved over 200 people before the North Tower collapsed at 10.28 a.m. While all six men died that day, none of them perished in vain. Gave their life sacrificially. Perhaps you've never heard of Benjamin Clark. Benjamin didn't serve as a police officer or a firefighter that day. In fact, he was working as a chef, prepping meals for those at the fiduciary trust company on the 96th floor. When the plane hit the building, he didn't try to escape disaster himself. Instead, he took steps to guide others to safety. A former Marine, James. Benjamin was a former Marine, and he ensured that everyone in his department, as well as those in the 96th floor, evacuated the building immediately. Following these tragic events, fiduciary officials credited Benjamin with saving hundreds of lives, including that of a woman bound by a wheelchair whom he carried to safety. But despite his undeniable heroism, Benjamin didn't survive that day. We move further into the conflict, and we find two Army Ranger combat medics in the heat of war by the name of Staff Sergeant Charles Bowen and Army Sergeant Ty Abel, men who leaped into action to save many American lives while nearly giving their own. It was in the Wardok province in Afghanistan where a special operations U.S. Army Ranger raid began an assault on a compound with enemy targets. As the enemy fighters fired back at the U.S. forces and Rangers began to close in on a target, there was a huge explosion injuring, fatally, almost fatally injuring many Rangers that day. Amidst rounds of machine gun fire, rockets and grenades, Bowen and Abel began pulling critically wounded men behind the cover from enemy fire. They quickly began performing advanced surgical techniques, 
and providing rangers with blood infusions with the supplies that they had at hand. And while the medics stabilized some of the injured, unfortunately, two of the men, two of the rangers were losing blood. They were losing a lot of it, and they were losing it fast. And unfortunately, they realized that they had already utilized all of their blood units for the other injured service members. Knowing that this was a life or death matter, the two medics decided to attempt what is only known as a ROLO or a Ranger OLO protocol, in which volunteers transfer their own blood into the injured Rangers on the battlefield. Their own blood. The procedure at the time was relatively new and had never been done before in the midst of combat. However, Bowen, Abel, and another volunteer were able to pull it off. As enemy fire continued to rage overhead, the three quickly worked to transfer large quantities of their own blood from their bodies into the bodies of the injured rangers, saving their lives. Throughout the procedure, the two medics also continually shielded their patients, putting their own bodies in between them and bullets to prevent injuries from enemy fire. As the wounded were loaded onto a helicopter for evacuation. The two army rangers still kept up a steady attack against the enemy, providing cover while putting their own life on the line. I am humbled by these accounts of individuals who demonstrated self-sacrifice, not just in word, but also in deed. On a recent work trip, I got to listen in on some of my retired military colleagues discuss and reminisce on acts of valor in the armed forces. It was in that conversation recently that former United States Marine Corps F-18 pilot Bradley Fitzpatrick, call sign Fitz, recounted a story. I sat there in the car riding with him and I literally saw the goosebumps on his arms and heard the slight choke of his throat as he began to tell us about his U.S. Naval Academy classmate, U.S. Marine Corps First Lieutenant Ron Winchester. He said that he studied in the Naval Academy with Ron Winchester. And that night, Ron checked into the command and they got to reunite. And they spent an evening just doing what soldiers do before going to battle the next day. The story came to a sad end when he found out that Ron was killed by a roadside bomb in Iraq's Anbar province. He was reported to be at the front guarding his convoy when an IED exploded on the bridge that they were crossing. Ron, a football fan and a football player since he was a young child, as well as a star lineman with the U.S. Naval Academy, remembered the words that his father taught him as a young lineman. He says, never leave your man. And that's exactly what Ron did that day. As Fitz began to recount the story, he said he was fatally wounded. One of his legs was blown off. Massive loss of, 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 of limbs and bleeding. And Ron not only protected his surviving Marines, but also mustered up enough strength and energy to radio the upcoming convoys to stand back, thus avoiding further casualties. As he fought with every ounce he had in him, Ron gave his life for his fellow brethren in his country at the young age of 25 years old. I'll give you one more story before we move on. This account, however, takes us back to World War II. His name was Lieutenant John Robert Fox. 29-year-old GI found himself fighting the Nazis in Italy. It was there in December of 1944 that he was tasked to stay behind in this small village in Tuscany. That village had been overrun by Nazis, and the Americans were in retreat. Fox found a house to hide in, and from the second floor, where he used his radio to contact his colleagues, he called for artillery fire to be directed at the village in order to give the U.S. forces time to retreat, regroup, and then launch a counterattack. Fox specifically ordered that the barrage of fire be placed on his exact position, in fact, the gunner who received the message, assuming that it had to be a mistake, pointed this out to him. He said, the coordinates that you're giving me are right in your exact location. 
And Fox said, I know exactly what I'm asking you. I know exactly the thing that I'm willing to do. He said, fire it. The Nazis are coming. There are more of them than there are of us. Bring Hades down on this portion because I need to save my fellow members. And Fox's act of sacrifice was not in vain as what he planned actually gave his comrades the chance to regroup and launch a successful counterattack. They found him later on with his body surrounded by the bodies of 100 Germans. Fox was a hero who paid the ultimate price for his brothers. He paid it with his life. And here's the amazing and yet humbling part about this account. Most of the people that he saved that day didn't even know what happened. Their lives were saved and they didn't even know it until years down the road. And this story reminds me of this reality. And I hope that it reminds you today of this reality. That God's love reached for you and God's love reached for me and touched me and protected me and protected you. Even when you didn't know what was happening. Come on. There are some of you in this building that have walked away from God. At times you had walked away from God and you wondered why God kept you. You wondered why things didn't happen the way that you thought they were going to happen. You wondered how in the world did I survive this and that I survived that. But God never walked away from you. God never stepped back from you. God never stopped loving you. He never stopped protecting you. He never stopped reaching for you. And he never stopped shielding you. Come on, there are situations that you can look back on and say that situation should have killed me. But God was there. There are things that you involved yourself in that should have taken you out. But God, so rich and so pure in his love and his mercy, kept you and he sustained you. Why? 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 Why did God do this? L-O-V-E. He did it because he loved you. He did it because he gave all. Amen. He did it all by himself. He purchased salvation all by himself. He did it so that those of us sitting in this room today would know that no matter what you need, whether you need healing or salvation, whether you need deliverance from drugs or alcohol or perversion, or whatever the case may be, he wants you to know that his love is here and that freedom is here today. Amen. He did it so that you would know that I love you. I love you right where you are. I love you just as you are. And you don't have to get perfect to come to me. That's not how this thing works. It's not go ahead and get sober and get yourself right and then come to me. It's not get clean and then come to me. It's not I need you to fix this and fix that and then come to me. It's not I need you to get this in order or that in order and then come to me. He says come to me in your condition. Come to me just as you are. Give me your sin. Come to me with your brokenness. Come to me with your mistakes. Come to me with your hurts and your failures and your addictions. Come to me with all your mess and I will meet you where you are and I will heal you and I will save you and I will deliver you. Redemption is his passion, living hope. Redemption is God's passion. It's that love affair that culminates with the new birth experience. That's when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ can create a brand new you. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Jesus Christ, Bishop said it earlier, Jesus Christ can make the difference when he begins to touch and heal your life. I love the new worship songs. I really do. I love singing, I thank God, and I love singing, give me Jesus, and I love the songs written by even our own apostolic authors and songwriters, but there's depth to the old hymns. Hymns like the ones that James Rowe wrote. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea Heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. He says, love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. He sees you. 
He sees you right where you're at. He sees what nobody else sees. He sees the tears that you cry when nobody's looking. I'm, I, I'm, I'm talking to everybody here. Seasoned saint or first-time guest. He sees the strong persona that we have to put in here when we come in here, but he sees the desperation in the midnight hour. But he sees you. He loved you. And he grabbed you and grabbed a hold of you and he lifted you. Now look at some of you. Trophies of grace. Ministers. Musicians. Sunday school teachers. Ushers and hostesses. Many of you are out here teaching Bible studies. Campus preservation. Whatever you may be involved in, look at you. Living proof that God can take the worst of sinners and make them into something great. Amen. And if you're in this building today and you haven't experienced what I'm talking about, don't worry, you will. Here in a few minutes, you're going to experience the power of God's love and the infilling of His Spirit. Because there's one thing that I can guarantee you today is that none of you in this room are getting away from God's love. In the Gospels, there are three parables that deal with the topic of something being lost. We all know it. He tells the parable of the lost sheep to show that the kingdom of God is accessible to all those who have strayed away and come back. It represents a person who wanders from Jesus by choosing to lead a life of sin and worldly pleasures. But he never gives up on that person. He never gave up on those who walked away. He never gave up on those who departed from God's past. He still loved them. He still missed them, and he still wanted the lost ones to return. And having that one person come back home to Jesus was cause for great celebration. Then there was the parable of the lost coin. A woman loses one of her ten silver coins. The woman represents God. The coins represent people. And the lost coin symbolizes that one lost soul, that God will work endlessly and relentlessly to bring them back. But the one that I really want to focus on as we move towards opening these altars is the lost son. This story I've come to realize is so much more than what we've been taught in Sunday school. It's one of the most famous and familiar stories in the Bible, if not all of literature. Jesus' parable of the lost or prodigal son who squanders his fortune on a whim and returns home broken and humiliated and dejected and rejected by the world, only to discover that his long-suffering dad was pleased and rejoiceful to see him. It's a beautiful picture of unconditional love. And more significantly, it's a beautiful picture of the love and the grace of God. However, when you study Middle Eastern culture and Jewish culture of the first century, you come to see that that story was unprecedented. In fact, theologians suspect that had Jesus told that story, which we all know he did, it was probably welcomed by a lot of criticism. In his book, Poet and Peasant, Cultural Studies, guru Kenneth Bailey is quoted as saying, to my knowledge in all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to the present, there is no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father, who is still in good health. Simply put, this sort of thing just doesn't happen. If it did, it would have been like wishing death upon the father. Such a transaction of giving inheritance would only take place when the father was about to die and could no longer be the head of the family. That's why when the son asking for his inheritance, when the father is still in good health, is basically that son saying, I wish you were dead. This has been confirmed by those hearing the story for the first time in a Middle Eastern context. The son's request heaps shame upon his family, in particular on his father, who is assumed to have raised an arrogant and self-centered son. But it also brings enormous grief to the father, who is basically told, you're dead to me now, by his own son. This act alone would have cut off the son 
would have cut him off not just from the family, but also from ever returning to the village that he came from. You stand with me. So now we move fast forward. The Jewish son goes from eating with pigs to coming to himself and deciding to return home. A Jewish son who not only lost his inheritance, lost it amongst the Gentiles, no less, has the nerve to return home. And now the father sees him from a distance. And here's where we have ended the story in Sunday school. A rejoicing father runs to meet his son, hugs him, brings him back, and the rest is history. But it's not that simple. According to many theologians and first century Middle Eastern cultural experts, for an elderly man to make, to run in public in that culture was humiliating. It was unusual and embarrassing. In fact, the father cast aside all behavioral conventions of the time as running was considered to be undignified of an older person, especially a wealthy landowner. And yet, the father runs anyways. He runs not just because he's filled with love and compassion, but he runs for another reason. In that culture, a Jewish son who lost his inheritance amongst Gentiles would have been made subject to a ceremony only known as Kezaza, in which villagers would try to stone and kill him as he made his way back into the village. And if they weren't able to do that, if he was able to make it alive into the village, the villagers would break large pots at his feet and they would yell at him and, and shame him and guilt him and beat him and stone him and tell him he's cut off. So now we look at the prodigal son. Now we look at that father looking at his son from a distance. And that father, full of love and grace and mercy, realized they're going to kill my boy. Once they see my boy come in here, they're going to kill my son. So he publicly shamed himself. And he ran to save his son. And with his actions, he said, if you're going to stone anybody, you're going to stone me. If you're going to shame anybody, you're going to shame me. If there's anybody that you're going to hurt, you're going to hurt me. But you're not touching my son. You're not touching my daughter. And that's why Jesus Christ himself endured the shame of the cross. That's why Jesus Christ himself endured the pain and the torture of Calvary. He did it for you. And he did it for me. And he did it that you would know that he would do anything for love. So this altar is open this day. And as you make your way towards this altar, rest assured that there's a God that loves you and he loves you unconditionally. Rest assured that as your shame and your guilt and your condemnation is working hard and as the enemy is working hard to throw stones at you and to judge you and tell you that you're not welcome back anymore, there is a God that loves you and there is a God that is saying, if you're going to stone anybody, you're going to stone. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait on you, Jesus.